This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Jude this morning, if you would. The book of Jude only has one chapter, and so that's where we'll be at today. We're wrapping up our series entitled Better Together. We've taken 10 weeks and taken a look at the importance of the local church. Uh, and many times these days, the, the church seems kind of like an add-on to Christianity when it actually should be one of the focal points for us as Christians uh, as well. And the church is so critical, so important to the life of a Christian. If you're missing the message, you can always get caught up on our website at whoecala.church. Uh, subscribe to our podcast. Download the Whoecala app if you want. If you have the Whoecala app, you can actually download the notes for today's message to your device. Um, if you click on the podcast and click on the message for today, there's a button where you can fill in the notes on your device. Uh, you can do it that way, or you can uh, download the PDF, or you can just take notes on a journal or whatever you got. Take good notes this morning. It'll be helpful for you. We've got a lot of uh, slides that we're going to go through today to show you, so, so stay on top of that as well. Today, we're taking a look at the perseverance of the church. Jesus made a promise, and he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, that his church would always stand the test of time, and that his people would always be his people. And we'll take a look at the perseverance of Jesus' church today. We find ourselves in the book of Jude. We'll start in verse number one. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men that crept in unawares who were before of ordained unto this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up in Kentucky in a small town of about 4,000 people or so. My, my family still lives there uh, to this day. Uh, we go back and visit uh, as often as we can. I, I think I've been back uh, twice uh, to my hometown in the last uh, eight years, uh, but I don't get back there m- much more these days. Uh, Honolulu is home for us. Uh, we decided to put our roots down here, and, and this is home for us. I grew up in a small town, and there was really, a, honestly, a church on just about every corner. Uh, in my town of about 4,000 people, there are about 75 Baptist churches for 4,000 people. Uh, literally, the, the court square, uh, the, the main square in, in my hometown, uh, there's First Baptist Church on one corner. The other corner is First Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, and the next corner is the First Methodist Church uh, there. Right on the court square, four of the corners taken up by churches. Uh, you can literally throw a rock and hit the next church. And so uh, that hasn't always been the case. It's certainly not the case everywhere in America, but where I grew up in the South, that's where it was. Uh, I was a Baptist because that's the, the, the church that my parents went to. I, I couldn't have, as a teenager, told you the difference between a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or anything like that. I had one friend in high school who was a Catholic who went to a Catholic church that was even outside of our county uh, because the county that, we, that I grew up in didn't even have a Catholic church in it. So uh, there was a, a young lady that, that moved to our, our school when I was in high school. Her parents were Mormon because they moved from Utah. I didn't know what that meant. I saw um, uh, 
commercials on TV when I was a kid, when I was watching cartoons where they would send you a free book in the mail and how Jesus was the answer to everything. And I just thought the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was just another type of Christian. I didn't really understand it all. Unfortunately, many Christians don't know what they believe, why they believe it, or what their church even stands for. Uh, most most uh, Christians would have a difficult time pointing out the doctrinal uh, statement of their, their church or where to find it or what their church even believes. Oftentimes, people today choose a church based on uh, the amenities or programs that it has, the type of parking structure that it has, uh, the type of kids' programs that there are, or even what style or type of music they have and whether or not they like that type of music. These are terrible reasons to be a part of a church. Unfortunately, we live in a time, too, where Christians, many Christians, don't know what they believe about the Bible either. And this is, is terrible as well. Let me just help you with something this morning. Today's message is going to be a little bit more teaching in nature because I want you to be discerning Christians. I want our church to be a church of biblical scholars who know the Bible, know church history, know why they are what they are and what they believe about the Bible. I would say that I grew up Baptist and about the time of about 18, 19, 20 years old, I began to be frustrated or maybe even disillusioned with churches. I saw it and I thought there had to be a better way. And so kind of went on a journey of self-discovery. You know, I kind of maybe ascribed to the idea that maybe all paths led to heaven. We just called it different names or different paths that we took and began to study different world religions. And I began to study, you know, I read a bit of the Quran and realized that I'm not a Muslim. And I read a little bit of the teachings of Buddha and realized that I wasn't a Buddhist and that they have differing worldviews on what the Bible says. And kind of narrowed it down to, I believe that God's word is true and it's authoritative. And so I began to look in the realms of Christianity. Uh, I dated a girl at the time who was a, a Catholic. I went to a Catholic mass and realized really quickly uh, that I'm not a Catholic because I can't subscribe to the belief structure that they had. And I began to whittle it down. And I went to, a, uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, she grew up Methodist. We went to a Methodist church. And I realized really quickly, I'm not a Methodist and I don't agree with some of the things that the Methodist church teaches. And so we really got back down to, hey, what does the Bible say? Let's do away with labels and, and, and names that people put on the outside of their buildings. What does the Bible say? And can we just stick with God's word and allow it to be authoritative? And the answer to that is absolutely wholeheartedly yes. But then the question arises, is there a group of people who would be considered people of the book, people who would subscribe to biblical doctrine with the the Bible as the sole authority for all matters of faith and practice, and by and large, for the most part, those people throughout history have been called Baptists. So one of the questions we got asked the most when we moved to Honolulu to plant who we call a Baptist church seven years ago this October we, we put a sign in the window as we were doing construction saying, coming October 2013, who we call a Baptist church. And people would walk by and every single time they would say, what is a Baptist? Now I could sit down and, and talk about Baptist and Baptist history and stuff like that. But here's the answer that I gave them. Somebody asked me, why are you a Baptist? Here's the answer that I always give them. I'm a Baptist because I first and foremost am a biblicist. I just believe God's word is authoritative. And at the end of the day, it has the final say for all matters of faith and practice. It doesn't matter what church history or church tradition or our church forefathers have done. We just use the Bible. I'm thankful that this morning I didn't have to uh, press out a white robe to wear and have those little things that uh, they hang around the edges. I'm thankful I didn't have to put on a, a backwards collar today because that's the church tradition that we have. We have no church tradition. The, the Bible is our sole authority. And in the Bible, in the book of Acts, you saw that they gathered together on a daily basis. Then what did they gather together for? They gathered together for prayer. 
They gather together for the reading of scriptures in Bible study. They gather together for fellowship. They gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They gather together for baptisms. They, they gather together for praise and worship and, and a time of singing together. They were challenged from God's word, and then when they left, they went and made a difference in their community, and that's precisely what we do today. Today we came, we sang a song of praise and thanksgiving to God. Uh, our, our singing time just because nobody likes to stand and sing in a mask because it's, it's weird, it's awkward. And so we, we've truncated that a little bit during this time. We gather together to hear what the Bible says. We'll figure out the application for us. At the end, we'll receive an offering and then we'll, we'll be dismissed and to go out and change the world together. That's what the original church did. That's what we do. We don't do anything because this is what Baptists do. When we get together, we usually have food because that's what Baptists generally do, but that's not necessarily a church tradition per se. And so for us, we're... Baptists, because Baptists, for the most part throughout history, have been biblicists. When we talk about the New Testament church, the New Testament church is a community of saved, baptized believers voluntarily associated together for the maintenance of the ordinances and for carrying out the Great Commission. Let's break that down. The New Testament church is made up of people who have been saved and baptized. They're gathered together voluntarily. Nobody forced us to be here. Nobody is making you be a part of the church. You've chosen to be a part of Jesus' church. For what purpose? To remember and honor Jesus. We talked about that the last three weeks, that we honor Jesus through the Lord's Supper or communion. We honor Jesus and his, remember what he's done for us through baptism, following him in, in believer's baptism. And then we gather together for the purpose of carrying out the mission that Jesus has given us. Jesus tells us in five different books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. We call that the Great Commission. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's our mission. That's what we do. That's our bread and butter. And if we're not going, we're not winning, we're not baptizing, and we're not teaching people the Bible, we are not fulfilling the mission. So, by this definition, which we find from Scripture, not neatly packaged together like this, but the principles we find in Scripture, if we are made up of a group of people who are not saved or who have not been baptized, and we're made up of a group of people who are not remembering Jesus and doing what he said, and we're made up of a group of people who are not fulfilling the Great Commission, then by definition, we are no longer a true church. Unfortunately, many churches today have replaced the Great Commission with a different mission. Uh, these days, it seems very popular to take up the mission of social justice, that we're going to erase racism, we're going to erase human trafficking, or we're going to erase uh, you know, poverty, or we're going to erase this, that, or the other. The greatest injustice to ever happen to mankind was not a social issue, it was a spiritual issue. All men have sinned Therefore, death has passed upon all men. That's our biggest issue that we have. I've broken God's law. You've broken God's law. We live in a society today that flaunts the fact that we are living in rebellion to God's law, and that is the biggest issue that we face. The greatest issue that we face is the fact that we have sinned against the holy God. The Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says you and I cannot continue in our sin and get away with it. We must... Pay for our sins, the Bible says. We're gonna be held accountable for all the wrong that we've done. And the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. Every single person, when it's lights out on planet earth for you, you'll stand before God and you'll give an account of your life. 
What does that look like? Well, God's already given you the criteria. Some people say, well, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You can't tell me where I'm going when I die. Only God can do that. I wholeheartedly agree, but God has already given his criteria for judgment. He who hath the Son hath life. He who hath not the Son hath not life, and the wrath of God abides on him. John chapter 3. That's God's plan. When you and I die, if we die in our sin, we will stand guilty before God, and his judgment has been pronounced, and it is death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death, separation from God in a place called hell. That is God's judgment. That is God's wrath. We are all deserving of that. But God loves you too much to allow you to die in your sin without any hope. So he sent his son, Jesus. God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to be punished, but Jesus was punished in my place. I was supposed to pay for my sin, but I have had my debt paid in full by Jesus. That's why he came to die. That's why the cross to us as Christians is such a holy picture, such a special, reverent thing of God's love for us because the cross is where my sin was put to death. But friend, you must make the decision for yourself whether or not you will put your faith in Jesus. Every person on planet earth will have to make the decision. Will I pay for my own sin or will I allow Jesus to pay the price for me? Again, unfortunately, in my late teen years, because I wasn't taught the Bible as a kid, wasn't discipled appropriately, I kind of bought into the idea that maybe all roads lead to heaven. But here's what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes under the Father but by me. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive path to heaven, so Jesus says, all roads don't lead to heaven. I am the only road that leads to heaven. So if we believe that to be true, we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we're willing to repent or agree with God about our sin. I believe that I've sinned against God. I believe that I need to change. I believe that I need help. I believe that I cannot save myself. I'm willing today to leave my sin to follow after Jesus. Now I'm gonna be perfect or I'm not gonna stop sinning forever, but I'm going to follow after Jesus and to do that, I have to agree with God about my sin. If you're willing to repent of your sin and Follow Jesus in faith. The Bible says you can be saved. It's a beautiful word. Romans chapter 10 tells us we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that we can be saved. I love what Jesus says in John chapter three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Friend, the only way you're gonna make it to heaven is to be born again, to be saved. <coughs> Sorry about that. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Do you know for sure if you died today, heaven's your home? You must be saved. You must be born again. The rest of what we talk about today doesn't amount to a hill of beans. What church you attend, what label you give yourself, if you are not a child of God, if you've not repented of your sins and followed after Jesus, doesn't matter. So you need to know for sure that you're saved. But for those of us that are saved, what do you believe and why do you believe it? The worst reason in the world to believe something is because your pastor said it's so. You need to find out from God's word what you believe and why you believe it. I challenge you to be Bible scholars. Men, you should be the resident theologian in your home. You should know what the Bible says and why you believe it. And if you don't know, you need to figure it out really, really quickly. Because God's word is our guide for everything. And so I want to challenge you to be discerning Christians. As we take a look at the church that Jesus started. Our adherence is not to a label, a hierarchy, a tradition, or a creed. Our allegiance is to the word of God, the mission of the church, and a commitment to one another. 
We've had people before say, well, do you believe in the, do you affirm the Nicene Creed? I couldn't even tell you what the Nicene Creed says. Well, what about the Apostles' Creed? I vaguely remember the Apostles' Creed from Bible college, but I, don't, I couldn't tell you what it said. You know why? Because we don't adhere to any specific creed. We adhere to God's Word, the Bible. I'm a biblicist. I couldn't tell you what the, the London Confession of 16-whatever says. I have no idea what it says. All I know is I believe the Bible. And as you can imagine, people can say that they believe anything, but the, the way that they live it out, the way that they carry it out, determines whether or not they really believe it or not. You call yourself a Christian, but live in opposition to God's word. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. And so for us, we're not going to adhere to a specific label above Christ or above uh, God's word. We're biblicists first and foremost. But I do believe that labels are important for us. You need to know what you're getting. If, when I open up the sink underneath, uh, the cabinet underneath my sink, I want to know what's in there. How do I know what is cockroach bait and how do I know what is dishwashing detergent if I don't read the label on it? When I go to the store and I buy something that's in the health food section, how do I really know what's in it unless I read the label on it, right? I remember for me, for a while, I got on a, a big time health kick. I was going to eat more meat, eat less carbs. And so one of the things that I got, I got myself a big, huge bag of beef jerky at Sam's Club right? I'm going to eat meat, you know, I'm, I'm going to do away with carbs. Do you know what the number one ingredient in beef jerky is? Brown sugar. That's why it's so delicious. And so here I am going on the no carb, all meat diet, sucking down brown sugar like there's no tomorrow, right? How do you know that? You read the label to find out what's in it. Unfortunately, many Christians don't read the label when they choose a church or when they choose a, 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 a way of life. They just say, oh, I love that church. I love to hear that, that preacher. He's such a good teacher. He's so funny. The, their music there is so good. Their kids' program is top-notch. But what does the label say? And so for us, the, the term Baptist has historically meant a people of the book. Uh, the term Baptist identifies us with Christians throughout world history that have stood for truth and righteousness. But just because somebody calls themselves a Baptist doesn't mean that they're 100% right or 100% doctrinally solid. We were watching some documentary several weeks ago, and this guy on there was a professed unbeliever, um, was going out to check out this church that was in this uh, abandoned mall. And so he goes to this church, and the church was a, like Faith Baptist Church or something like that. And he goes in, and it's pastored by a, a woman, pastor, first of all, which automatically red flags go off because the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy that a woman can't be a pastor of a church. So a Baptist church pastored by a woman, first of all, I say, you're not Baptist, period, um, because you don't hold to simple biblical orthodoxy. Second thing she said to this guy who was a professed unbeliever who said he had never been to a church in his life, she said, I look at you and I see a beautiful spirit. You are a beautiful child of God. And I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. I wanted to pull my hair out. And I'm thinking to myself, you're not Christian. You're definitely not Baptist. Just stop it already because you're making real Christians look bad. So I'm not saying the name automatically determines biblical fidelity, but names mean something and labels mean something. And so you need to read the labels and more importantly, you need to read into good doctrine. In every age since Jesus and the apostle, there have been companies of believers and churches who have substantially held the principles of the New Testament. <clears throat> Throughout all of the last 2,000 years, there have been a group of people who said, we are a people of the book. Jesus Christ is our head, and we follow after him and him alone, always. Jesus' church never went away. Jesus' church never stopped or ceased to exist. It always has been. 
Throughout the years, they've gone by many different names, Christians, Donatists, Monetists, Novatians, Puritans, Paulicians, Albigenses, Waldensians, Anabaptists, Baptists, and others. The Donatists arose in Numidia in the year 311 AD, and they soon extended over into Africa. A French historian by the name of Crespin taught that they held four major views. First of those was the purity of church members, that they needed to be saved people who were living a righteous and holy life to be a part of the church. Secondly, they held to purity for church discipline and the fact that if someone stepped out of line, they would hold them accountable for it according to the Bible. Thirdly, they held for the independency of each church, that every church would be unique and independent and distinct and apart from any type of hierarchical structure. And fourthly, they committed to baptizing people who they deemed did not have a sufficient baptism the first time. So people who had been baptized as an infant, they would baptize them after salvation by immersion according to good biblical doctrine. Those are the four kind of bedrocks that he found in these early churches that were part of the church that Jesus started. Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in the 1800s in London, and he said, we are the old apostolic church that has never bowed the yoke of princes yet. We, known among men in all ages by various names, such as Donatists, Novatians, Paulicians, Petributions, Cathari, Arnoldists, Hussites, Waldenses, Lollards, and Anabaptists, have always contended for the purity of the church and her distinctness and separation from human government. Our fathers present to us their children an unbroken line, which comes legitimately from the apostles, not through the filth of Rome or the manipulation of prelates, but the divine life. What he's saying is that throughout history, there's always been a people of the book. And we would say that we line up with the people who have always stood for truth. That Jesus started a church and it never stopped. Now, this is also a good time to pull over and say for for, uh, sake of clarity that we don't consider ourselves what would be called landmark Baptists or sometimes referred to as Baptist Briders. What they would believe was that every church all the way back to the apostles was a Baptist church and you have to be able to trace your church back to another Baptist church somewhere along the way, otherwise you're not a true church. We don't believe that that's the case at all. I think I might have even sometimes jokingly called the church in Acts chapter two, the first Baptist church of Jerusalem, but that wasn't its name and it wasn't necessarily a Baptist church uh, per se. But we would say that throughout all of human history, there has been a church that has stood to the Bible as its sole authority. That's gonna be really important when we take a look at how we wound up where we are today. So if Jesus started one church, how did we wind up with thousands, literally thousands of different denominations when Jesus only started one church. We'll take a look at that here today. First of all, there was the church that Jesus started. It started in when he called his apostles that laid the foundation for it. So the church that Jesus started, he calls his apostles on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. We've taken a look over the last several weeks at Acts chapter two, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people saved, baptized, added to Jesus's church. And the church at Jerusalem was started and empowered by the Holy Spirit and 3,000 believers, the Bible says people were getting saved every single day. Every single day, people were gathering together for a time of prayer, for, for a time of sharing a meal together. They'd study the scriptures together. They'd talk about God's goodness. They would praise God together. They would sing together. They would take the Lord's Supper together to remember Jesus and the sacrifice that he had made for them. And this is the church as we know it. Persecution came to the church early on. People were being thrown in prison as a result of it. We see uh, in the book of Acts 
chapter number seven, that there was a man by the name of Stephen who became the first martyr of the church. This first group of believers in Stephen was stoned and put to death for the crime of believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. It came not only from the, the folks who held to Judaism, but also from the pagan Roman government as well. And the persecution of this church at Jerusalem came and they began to scatter. They began to find any hillside that they could find or a, a community outside of Jerusalem that they could go to. Some fled to caves or other forests to find refuge. But when they left, they began to do what they'd always done, pray, study the Bible, share a meal together, sing together. Someone would teach the Bible. They would learn the Bible together. And these small churches began to crop up all around. As these churches began to crop up without any real sense of leadership, the apostle Paul emerges and begins to plant churches specifically. Acts chapter 13, we see Paul and Barnabas go out and begin purposely planting churches in different cities that didn't have any. Then he began to give guidelines to young pastors like Timothy. Hey, Timothy, here's how you pastor, and here's the qualifications of a pastor and other leaders in a church that would be called deacons. He writes to, to Titus in Titus chapter one. and says, Titus, I left you in the city of Crete, and here's why I left you. I want you to ordain pastors in every single city that would lead these churches. And here's the qualifications, Titus, that I want you to follow for these men that will lead the churches. In Titus chapter one, we see the qualifications of a pastor and a deacon listed there as well. So these churches began to be set up all, all over. No really centralized source of leadership other than Jesus Christ was the head. A local church pastor would guide the flock to follow after Jesus, and that was it. Spoke about this a couple of week, weeks ago, but by way of review, about uh, 200 AD or so, there began to be doctrinal error that crept into the church. And we see three major doctrinal errors that really kind of set everything off the rails and began the first major church split that we see. Three major doctrinal errors that we see is, first of all, the hierarchy of the churches. The idea was this, that the larger churches should have say over the smaller churches. And there became kind of this hierarchy, political structure that was in place where uh, the larger church pastors would tell the smaller church pastors what to do or uh, how to, to hold their services or how to keep people accountable. And these uh, small church pastors were then accountable to the people over them. This is not a biblical view, again, because Paul ordained that, uh, that uh, Titus should ordain pastors of every church in every city and that they should oversee their flock. Paul never at any point, neither Peter or James ever assumed leadership over any churches outside of their local body of believers that they were in charge of. Second major doctrinal error that took place was the error of baptismal regeneration. We took a look at this three weeks ago. It's the idea that baptism washes your sins away, that you're a new creature in Christ upon not your faith in Christ or repentance of sin, but upon your baptism you were saved or born again. Major doctrinal error there where these churches says we're not comfortable with this. Third major doctrinal error we see is that of infant baptism. The idea is if, if water washes our sins away, then we should baptize our babies so that it washes their original sin from Adam away. Again, not a shred of scriptural evidence for any of this. And so for this reason, many of the true Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches at that time says, hey, we're done with you guys. We don't consider ourselves a part of you and we're no longer in fellowship together with you. And we see really the first break, major break that we see in the church, about 200 AD or so. And these churches that broke off continued in doctrinal error of a hierarchical structure and a, a baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. And then in about the year uh, 313 AD, 
it would appear that Christianity had won a major victory over paganism in the fact that a new emperor had come to the throne in Rome. And while Rome had originally been anti-Christian, you take a look at Nero, and he would put Christians to death and put them on pikes and actually light them as torches to be used. Christians would be crucified by the hundreds as on the roads leading into Rome uh, as a way of showing that Christians weren't welcome there. Constantine, the emperor of Rome, claimed that he saw a sign in the sky, and it was a cross. And he heard the voice that said, by this sign, conquer. And he took that as a sign that he was to be a Christian and Rome was to be a Christian nation. And so he said, I'm going to be a Christian and I will be the emperor of Rome, but I'll also be the head of the church as well. And he found a hierarchical structure of churches that was already in place. They had poor doctrine and they weren't necessarily following after Jesus. And so Constantine made himself the emperor of Rome as well as the head of the church. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that anybody who claims to be the head of the church is immediately in trouble because Christ is the head of the church. So these Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches already were at doctrinal odds with these churches that had split off. Now they said, we will definitely never have anything to do with you because the only head of the church that we have is Jesus Christ, not Caesar or any Roman emperor. So while this appeared to be a win for the Christian religion, it actually would be uh, a much grief would be caused for the Christians from here, here on out. Thus, the Christian religion would, in fact, become a whole world religion, and Rome Empire would be a whole world empire, and Constantine wanted to use religion as a way to conquer the rest of the world and to enlarge the Roman Empire. And so then we see at 313 AD the beginning of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and Constantine was the first head of the church. In the year 416, Infant baptism was required by all people who had a child under the authority of Rome. So if you're a Roman citizen or you're living in a Roman region, you were required by law in the year 416 to baptize your infant child because everyone was required to be Christian. And if you know anything about the story of Christ in the gospel, you know this is the opposite of the gospel. Jesus Christ says, whosoever will may come, not you're forced to come. And the idea of baptizing babies really rubbed these true Christians the wrong way. And they said, first of all, the only head of the church is Jesus. Second of all, we're not part of your holy Roman Catholic church. Third of all, we're not baptizing our kids because the Bible doesn't give us guidelines to do that. And in 416, it was enacted that all those who refused infant baptism for your children were to be either imprisoned or put to death. So here we really see the strong arm of the Holy Roman Catholic Church come out to force people, not to Christianity, but force people to Catholicism. And in the year 416 and onward would begin a 1,200-year period that we refer to as the Dark Ages, where the Catholic Church would send people out to communities, and those who refused to fall under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church would be put to death. History says that uh, the... Uh, this 1,200-year period known as the Dark Ages, loyal New Testament churches, by whatever name they were called, are hunted down and hounded to the utmost limit of the Catholic power. Remnants would be scattered of true Christians all throughout countrysides, hillsides. Again, as we see persecution come, they would go out to dens and caves and valleys. Year 1,200 began the Inquisition, which was a ch church court that was created to uh, try heretics. And the definition of a heretic was anybody who disagreed with the Catholic Church. 
These inquisitors would go out into troublesome regions, would question people intensively, conduct tribunals, and mete out punishment, sometimes harsh ones, like burning at the stake. Depending on the time and place, the targets were heretics or those who didn't agree with the Catholic Church, Jews, Muslims, Protestants, rationalists, and sometimes people who held superstitious beliefs would be put to death. It's important to understand, too, that when we take a look at church history, there are some books that are accurate church history accounts, and there are some church history books that are just flat-out lies. A lot of our history books that are taught in school say that Christians conquered the world through the Crusades. Christians didn't do that. Catholics did. True Bible-believing Christians were put to death for their faith. You and I would have been held in contempt of the Catholic Church and would have been guilty of crimes against the Catholic Church and been put to death. During this 1,200-year period, it's estimated that the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages put to death 50 million Christians that were murdered at the hands of the Catholic Church. They would go to your, to your village, and if you were, had a copy of the Bible, it was punishable by death. If you f- refused to recant of your faith in Jesus Christ, you were punishable by death. If you refused to put yourself under the authority of the Catholic Church and be baptized in the Catholic Church, you were put to death as a result of it. Villages, men, women, and children were burned at the stake. They were drowned in rivers. They were pushed off of cliffs because they refused to give up their copies of the Bible, because they refused to recant of their faith in Jesus Christ alone, and because they refused to give over to a false church. To this day, in 2020, the Catholic Church has refused to take ownership or repent of the death of 50 million Christians. They just act like it never happened. So it's important to understand that many, much of church history, true church history, has been erased because the church is deemed to be the Catholic church. And these people's lives were taken, their, their homes were burned, and any copies of the Bible that were found were immediately confiscated and incinerated. And people would be uh, a great book to read if you ever get a chance is the book Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, it's a phenomenal book. You can get it on Amazon or get it on your Kindle and read it on, in, on your mobile device. And basically, it's not a sit-down, page-turner kind of book, but it's something to maybe read as part of your daily devotionals, maybe read a couple pages. It starts with Stephen, and the, or actually starts with Jesus Christ and the apostles and Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church. And then it goes throughout people throughout all of world history who have given their life for the faith. In the updated versions, uh, John Fox died uh, many years ago, but it carried on his work and basically lists people, even up to this day, who have given their life for their faith. We need to remember that the faith that we have didn't just get passed down from maybe our parents or our grandparents or maybe from a neighbor. It's got passed down for people throughout the years who have given their lives and who had their children ripped from their arms and put to death because they refused to give in to false doctrine. When people would be saved in the churches that Jesus started, and they would come over to these churches. They would then be asked to be baptized according to Scripture by immersion after salvation. And these churches were then mocked and called the rebaptizers or the Anabaptists, and that's how the Baptists got their name because they were the rebaptizers. It was a name that was given to us by our enemies who mocked us and made fun of us because we rebaptized people Year 869 AD, we see the Greek Orthodox Church split off to the Roman Catholic, from the Roman Catholic Church. And the Greek Orthodox Church would find its home in Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul or Turkey. 
And then the uh, Roman Catholic Church will, will later move its headquarters to the Vatican City in Rome. We see a split off of that, and the Greek Orthodox Church would then split off even further into the Russian Orthodox Church. And here in, in Honolulu, we have Russian Orthodox churches, which are basically a form of, Christ, uh, a form of Catholicism, and a break off of that. I'm thankful that even in a, uh, a city like Honolulu, which has a small uh, Russian population, that while there is Russian Orthodox false teaching, which is basically just a form of Catholicism, over near the airport, there's a Slavic Baptist church that speaks Russian, and they preach the gospel over there. I'm thankful for those people who uh, stand strong against cultural opposition through uh, the Russian Orthodox Church and stand true for the gospel. And by the name of John Wycliffe in the 1300s defied the teachings of Rome and began translating the Bible into English. He believed that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language. They shouldn't have to worry about a priest reading to them in a language like Latin, which they didn't understand. He said everybody should be able to read the Bible in their own language. And so John Wycliffe began the translation of the Bible into the English language so that everyone could read the Bible for themselves. Up to that time, the Bible was only available in Latin, and you only heard it when you went to the Roman Catholic Church. Again, it was illegal to own a copy of the Bible during that time. If you were caught with portions of Scripture, you could be put to death for it, and the Copies of Scripture would be taken and incinerated or burned, taken from you. But John Wycliffe began this translation work. He didn't quite get it finished when he died of natural causes in 1384 A.D. The Catholic Church was so incensed by the work that he had done and sought to destroy it in any way that they could. He had already died of natural causes. So 30 years after his death, the Roman Catholic Church dug up John Wycliffe's body for the purpose of burning it and throwing his ashes in the Rhine River just as a show of force against anyone who would stand up against the church, which is a false church, and anybody who would have the audacity to try to translate the scriptures into a language where everyone could understand them. I say this because I want you to value the copy of God's word that you hold in your hands. I want you to realize that not always did everyone have a copy of the Bible in their own language. You could so easily and readily read the Bible that we have a treasure of the Bible in our own language when we shouldn't take it for granted. It's not something to stick on the night table. It's not something to use as a coaster so that we don't get the coffee table wet. It is God's precious word that has been preserved through the blood of the saints through the ages. It's a big deal for us. John Wycliffe didn't quite finish his work before he died of translating the Bible into English, so a man by the name of William Tyndale would later pick up his work. But in 1415, a man by the name of John Huss was burned at the stake. Huss was influenced by the writings of Wycliffe, especially his reject, rejection of the, the uh, biblical basis for the Roman Catholic Pope having any authority over the church. John Huss was also uh, insistent that the scriptures were the foremost authority in all matters of, of church practice. Uh, John Huss also was vehemently against the doctrine of transubstantiation, the fact that uh, in the Roman Catholic Mass that the Eucharist literally became the blood and body of Jesus Christ. He rejected that so vehemently and preached and taught and wrote against it. The Catholic Church then would have him arrested. The bishops decided that they should cut off the crown of his head with a pair of shears, which they proceeded to do and basically scalped him. And then on his bloodied head, they put a paper bishop's hat on it that had demons painted on it and the words, a ringleader of heretics. When Huss saw it, he said, for my sake, my Lord Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns. For it, so for his sake, why should I not wear this light crown, even though it's a shameful thing? When the bishop put the paper mitre on Huss's head, he said, now we commit your soul to hell. Huss lifted up his eyes toward heaven and said, but I commend into your hands, O Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit that you've redeemed. 
Huss was then led past a fire where the, they were burning his books and he was bound to a stake with a chain. As the executioner wrapped the chain around him, Huss smiled and said, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake, so why should I be ashamed of this rusty chain? While the Duke of Bavaria tried to get him to recant his teachings, Huss replied, no, I never preached any doctrine that was evil and what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. When the wood was lit, the flames engulfed him and Huss sang a hymn so loud the cheerful and cheerful that the, those around him could hear it above the crackling and burning of the sticks. Here's a guy whose crime was to stand up for biblical truth, to stand against heresy, true heresy of the Roman Catholic Church and he was put to death for it. A man by the name of William Tyndale would later pick up John Wycliffe's work and begin translating the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew language into English. It's estimated that about 85% of the New Testament, about 70% of the Old Testament that we have in the King James Version is actually almost word for word William Tyndale's translations that he has. He's a, a hero of the faith. One man said that we would be better without God's word than without the teachings of the Pope. To which Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and his teachings, and if I have my way, every plowboy in England will know more of the scriptures than the Pope himself. Because at that time, it was illegal to own a copy of the Bible, and so uh, William Tyndale made it his life's work to begin translating the Bible into English. In 1526, William Tyndale's publication of the New Testament opened up the first time the New Testament in English. And copies began to go all throughout England when Catholic Church got word of this, they ordered that all of Tyndale's New Testaments be gathered together at St. Paul's Cross outside St. Paul's Cathedral and be burned in London. It was illegal to own a copy of the New Testament. It's a picture of St. Uh, Paul's Cross right outside St. Paul's Cathedral. Angela and I had the opportunity in London last summer to be able to go there and to be able to stand there in that place while people sat on that and, and ate their sandwich and dogs ran around it and kids played and things like that to think that this was a place where the New Testament was gathered and burned by a church that did not want you to know what the Bible says. They did not want you to have your own copy of God's Word. Tyndale fled the country because he was under persecution from the church, the Roman Catholic Church, in October 6, 1536, the town of Vilvoorde in the Netherlands, William Tyndale, God's first translator of the New Testament into English, was brought to a place of execution, tied to a stake, strangled by the hangman to the point of death, and then burned in fire for doing the Lord's work. As he met the Lord, Tyndale cried with a loud voice, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake. And what was his crime? Translating the Bible into English. Later, King James of England would actually require that the, the Bible be translated into English. And later, uh, the King of England would actually require the Bible to be translated for every man to be able to read. But William Tyndale gave his life for it. And so again, when you and I just see the Bible as an app that we download to our phone or as a, a cool thing that we want to get at the Christian bookstore that, that looks cool or we use it as a prop, we need to understand that this is God's word that has been preserved through the blood of Christians throughout the ages. And men like William Tyndale are heroes to us because we have a copy of God's word in our own language. On October 31st of 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany and spawned what we know of as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, known for having a really sweet haircut, uh, but also known for his 
protest of the indulgences of the Catholic Church. What the Catholic Church said is if you want to sin, it's okay to do that. You just need to pay X amount of money in advance and then you can go and sin and your sin will be forgiven. That's one of the ways that they actually raised money for the building of uh, cathedrals that they wanted to build and beautiful stained glass and uh, artwork that they commissioned for their cathedrals by the selling of indulgences. And Martin Luther says, "Uh uh-uh, I can't handle that. And so he wrote 95 things that he saw wrong with the church and he nailed them to the door of the church and says, I won't be a part of this any longer and spawned what we know of as the Protestant Reformation. Now, it's important to know There have always been churches, if that happened in 1517, there were churches for the previous 1,300 years that protested the Catholic Church, that refused to be a part of that, that always stood with good biblical doctrine. So it's not one person coming out of the church, it's the church being persecuted by a false church. And now people coming out of that false church This sparked an exodus from the Catholic Church during this time, known of as the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther founded the Lutheran Church. John Knox founded the Presbyterian Church. And then Henry VIII failed to get an annulment for his uh, marriage and started the Church of England. (laughs) Funny thing in history that Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, but the Pope said that he couldn't. So he decided that he would be the Pope of his own church and started the Church of England so that he could divorce his wife that he wanted to. And while this exodus from the Catholic Church would appear to be friends to the top line there, the church that Jesus started, It's interesting that each of these churches then that came out of the Catholic Church still continued in their persecution of Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Christians who did not believe the way that they wanted to, and persecution did not let up. It actually even continued even into the Protestant Reformation. What happened then is Catholicism continued to be the Church of Rome. The Lutheran Church became the State Church of Germany. The Presbyterian Church became the State Church of Scotland, and the Church of England would then become the State Church of England. So now we have not only one state government church, we now have three different, four different state churches where if you lived in Germany, you were required to be a Lutheran. If you lived in Scotland, you were required to be a Presbyterian. If you were in England, you were required to be a part of the the Church of England. It was a requirement by the state. You weren't allowed to worship how you wanted to. And so with this persecution, and this strict guideline on how people could worship, there arose a group of Christians who says, we just want to worship God how we want. We want the freedom of religion. We don't want the government involved in our worship services. And we can't find it here, so we'll have to go somewhere else. And they got on a boat, and they crossed the ocean, and they came to a land that we now know as America in search of religious freedom. Now, again, modern-day history books, even since I was in school, have been sanitized to say, these people came over because they wanted land. These people came over because they were in search of treasure. These people were really uh, fortune hunters. They weren't searching for religion. They were searching for money. We know that that's not the case at all. They came here in search of religious freedom. And many of our colonies would have churches started in those. Churches would crop up in the early American colonies that were there. And it was important to them from the very beginning to say, hey, we're not going to have any church that is required by the government. No more state churches. Everybody has the ability to live as they want to. And it's interesting that our founding forefathers wanted a separation of church and state, which doesn't happen to be in the Constitution for those of you that have never read the Constitution. They wanted a separation of the church and state so that the government couldn't tell us any longer how we could worship. 
It was never meant so that the church, the Christians, wouldn't have any say in how the government operated, which is what, again, modernist history wants you to believe. Those who want to rewrite history want to say, oh, we need a separation of church and state. The, the church shouldn't say anything about abortion. The church shouldn't say anything about uh, drugs. The church shouldn't say anything about this or that. We have a separation of church and state. And, and then they want to hold over us and say, oh, if you want to have your say, then you need to, to give up all your, your benefits that you receive from the government because you're no longer, we need a separation of church and state. The idea was always that the, the government wouldn't have the right to tell us how we could worship. And we still stand for that today. Hey, look, if you want to worship the flying spaghetti monster, go for it. I don't care. You're wrong. Hey, you want to cry out to Allah and pray five times a day? Go for it. You're free to do that. You're wrong, but you're free to do it. And so we still believe in a freedom of religion because that's what our Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Christian ancestors came here and many of them gave their lives for. In 1785, the Methodist Church was started from a split off of the Church of England, and uh, that split also spawned the Anglican Church, and also in the United States, the Episcopal Church. So Church of England split off into the Anglican Church, so Anglican is basically a form of uh, Church of England light, uh, and then the uh, split off of that, excuse me, in the United States was the Episcopal Church. And a lot of these, you still see a lot of holdover from Catholicism, they still wear a lot of the same garments, still have a lot of the same traditions, still carry over a lot of things like infant baptism that you'll see uh, that take place in these churches because they came out of the Catholic Church, they just didn't come out far enough. They rejected some doctrine, but they didn't reject all bad doctrine. And so for that reason, a lot of these Protestant churches that you see, Lutherans, Episcopals, Anglicans, uh, things along the, still have a lot of traditional holdovers from Catholicism. And so a, a lot of even Presbyterian churches still continue to do infant baptism because it's a holdover from Catholicism. And so again, it's important to understand where we came from because that influences a lot of what we do. In 1867, we see a group split off of the Methodist church called the Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement had the idea that this, that we would receive a second blessing from God and that we would no longer... Uh, sin, we come to a place of su such holiness that we would then no longer sin the rest of our lives. And we would be so holy and so right and so close with God that we would no longer sin. First of all, tell me where to sign my kids up for that because that would be awesome. Second of all, here's the problem with all that. The Bible clearly says, if any man says that he has no sin, he's a liar. You say that you don't sin, you're just flat out not telling the truth. So the holiness movement spawns out off of that from the holiness movement then spawns off the Pentecostal movement, who then began in the 1900s, 1906 or so, began to seek out another filling, fresh filling of the Holy Spirit and began to do things like seek out supernatural sign gifts like speaking in tongues. <laughs> you find the, quote, gift of speaking in tongues lie dormant in the local New Testament church for 1,800 years and then automatically gets found again in the middle of Oklahoma in the middle of early 1900s. Again, you need to know where you came from and where this stuff came from. And again, the idea of speaking in tongues is a relatively new thing, not necessarily in our generation, but in the last hundred years. That these people that thought that they received the gift of speaking in tongues truly believed that they were speaking in a known language. That some of them went as missionaries to other countries believing they could speak the language and got off only to realize that they were speaking gibberish and no one understood them. And they came back and trying to figure out this new speaking in tongues that they did, what is it? Maybe it's a private prayer language that I pray with God so that the devil can't hear it. Sounds great 
and, and reason, but it doesn't hold a shred of biblical evidence. And you begin to realize that this seeking of another filling of the Holy Spirit was just another type of seeking after something that split off of a holiness movement. The Pentecostal movement began to get a bad rap in the early 1900s of being way too uh, out there. People would come to the services and people were falling out on the floor. People were running circles around the auditorium. People were standing up and screaming and, and falling and convulsing on the floor. And a woman by the name of Amy McPherson felt that this put Pentecostalism in a, a, a bad light. So she devised the idea this, that we would create an exterior that appeared to be Christian and normal on the outside, but if you got past the initial veneer, you'd see that Pentecostalism was still alive and well, seeking out supernatural sign gifts and things like that. This woman by the name of Amy McPherson started a, a church called the Four Square Gospel, which is basically Pentecostalism light. And so she began that. And so it's important to know what we believe, where we, why we believe it, where we came from. All this was a split off of the original Methodist church, which started off the, the holiness movement, Pentecostalism, and then along to the Foursquare Gospel. To make matters even more confusing, in addition to all these splits, there are multiple kinds of each of these different types of churches. There's the Presbyterian Church of the United States, or PCUSA, which should not be confused with the PCA, which is a Presbyterian Church in America, which shouldn't be confused with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or the Bible Presbyterian Church or the Cumberland Presbyterian Church or the Cumberland Presbyterian Church shouldn't be confused with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And it goes on and on. Unless you think this is relegated to the uh, Presbyterians. Uh, it's happened among Baptists. There's the Alliance of Baptists, American Baptist Association, American Baptist Churches in the USA, Association of Reformed Baptist Churches in, in the USA, Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, Baptist Bible Fellowship, International Baptist Missionary Alliance, uh, Central Baptist Association, I just got to the seas. And it goes on like 100 different types of Baptist churches deep. And so then the question is, what does that mean for us? Who are we? What does that make us? And the, often, the question I get asked usually initially is, if we call a Baptist church a Protestant church? So the question is, are we a Protestant church? Well, to figure that out, we need to know what you mean by Protestant. One definition of Protestant says that these are people who are not uh, Catholic or, or Greek Orthodox or Anglican or anything like that. By that definition, I suppose you could call us Protestant. But the second definition is a true definition of Protestant. These are the people who came out of the Catholic Church, who traced their lineage back to the people who protested to come out of the Catholic Church, whether those were uh, the Lutherans, whether it was John Knox, or whether others who were in the Catholic Church but came out of it. And for that case, we would say we're not Protestants. Bible-believing Christians have always stood against any type of church that was in doctrinal error, would be a contaminated church. We've always stood against the church at Rome from, from 380 on. And so we wouldn't consider ourselves Protestant in the fact that we never came out of the church at Rome. Bible-believing Christians don't trace their heritage back to the churches who protested the Catholic church. We trace our lineage back to Christ himself. Bible-believing churches have always protested unbiblical doctrine and contaminated churches, always. <coughs> to this day, we continue to protest Catholicism and any belief that a religious structure can hopefully maybe one day get you to heaven. We continue to protest against the idea of people who would call themselves Christians but deny that Jesus Christ is God or was the Son of God. We continue to reject that. We continue to protest that. We continue to protest any church who would say that all roads lead to heaven or we'll all eventually get to the same place. We reject the idea of universalism as well. We've always done that. Bible-believing Christians have always done that. 
Bible-believing Christians were never part of the Roman Catholic Church, therefore never came out of the Catholic Church. For that reason, I'd say we're not necessarily Protestant Church. If by Protestant you mean non-Catholic, I'll take that, but I would never define who we call a Baptist Church or any church that traces their lineage back to Christ's church as a Protestant church by definition. Now, sometimes people who don't understand church history or maybe I've got 10 seconds to talk to them if they say, uh, is your church a Protestant church? If I say, if you mean by non-Catholic, yes. But otherwise, no. And, and I love to take you know, 10 minutes and talk to people about church history and how we wound up where we are today. So then, uh, what denomination are we? Sometimes people ask. So what denomination are we? Is Baptist a denomination? I don't like the term denomination either, and let me tell you why. Because the term denomination comes from the word denominator, which means part of a fraction. If you hearken back to third grade math, you'll remember that fractions have a numerator and a denominator. One-fourth, one is the numerator, four is the denominator. It means it's part of. And a denomination means that we are a sliver of, a fraction of, a part of Jesus' church, and that there are many parts of it. Jesus doesn't have many churches. He has one church, founded upon Christ, founded upon the Word of God. That's it. So for that reason, we wouldn't call ourselves a denomination either. We're not a part of Jesus' church. We are Jesus' church. I'm not a fraction of the church that Jesus started. I'm part of the church that Jesus started. I would align myself with Bible-believing Christians who throughout all history said Christ alone, God's word alone, for the glory of God alone. Always. And that didn't start in the 1500s. It started when Jesus started his church. So, then the question is, if we're not a denomination, are we non-denominational? Oh, my word. So many different terms, right? So does that make us non-denominational then? Generally, when someone calls themselves non-denominational, first of all, generally they're not non-denominational. But secondly, non-denominational can sometimes be a smorgasbord or a buffet of doctrine. Uh, I met with a pastor when we were first starting who we call out, trying to get to know people in the community, and I asked to go to lunch with me, and so I went and had lunch with him. He's just a pastor of a non-denominational church. I said, what does that mean? He said, we just kind of uh, you know, are, believe that God's word is the, 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 the sole authority. Yeah, I do too, but we disagree on a lot of things. Well, does your church believe in supernatural sign gifts? And he goes, well, I believe, you know, in, in speaking in tongues, but not necessarily uh, healing uh, or any types of uh, uh, miracles or things like that. And he goes, but we have people in our church that do. Oh, okay. Um, well, you know, do you believe in the eternal security of the believer and the fact that you get saved, there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation? He goes, well, I don't know, but there's people in our church that do. Oh, okay. Do you believe in literal hell? I do, and, and generally most people in our church do. We have some people who uh, believe in eternal uh, soul sleep. So you don't really stand for anything, right? That's what you're telling me. It's, like, it's basically just kind of whatever you want to believe. That would be a, a bad non-denominational church. But some churches who appear on the veneer to be non-denominational actually aren't non-denominational at all. Even uh, some churches in our, uh, in our city who would appear to be on the outside non-denominational I've met people before who said, oh, I go to New Hope, it's a non-denominational church. Actually, New Hope Christian Fellowship, which is the name uh, of it, is actually a four-square Pentecostal church. So I didn't know you were Pentecostal. Oh, I'm not, I'm non-denominational. Actually, you're not. Your church isn't. And if you, again, on the outside, appears to be very, very much maybe what we believe. They say, oh, Jesus is the answer and you need to, to be saved. But you dig a little bit deeper. They don't believe that you can keep your salvation forever. They believe that you have the ability to lose your salvation. Uh, they also believe that any sin in your life is not a result of your fault or your carnal nature. It's a result of demonic activity in your life and you need to, to exercise those demons out. And you begin to dig a little bit deeper and realize it's just a, a lighter version of Pentecostalism. 
Inspire Church, which is out at White Kelly, which you cannot, for the life of you, find a doctrinal statement on their church website or how to get to heaven or what they believe about Jesus. Uh, Inspire Church, if you dig on resources outside of their church, you'll find out that, that um, Inspire Church is also a four-square Pentecostal church. They don't tell you that. Uh, again, it appears to be non-denominational. Most people think that it, they're part of a non-denominational church. Uh, Word of Life up the street here from us is a Word of Faith, False Teaching, Prosperity Gospel Church that is sending people to hell by the thousands. I wouldn't tell you that on their website, obviously, but uh, again, not solid doctrinally at all. You know why? Because you can't find any doctrine on their church website. And so again, on the outside, it appears like, hey, we're all Christian here. That's why, again, I believe labels are important. I'm not ashamed to say that we're a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Baptist church because Baptists have historically been biblicists who hold to strong, good biblical doctrine. And so then, well, if we're not non-denominational, what are we? And there's a guy that came by our church several years ago. We're standing out front, and he was like, oh, Baptist church. What kind of Baptist are you? You're just Baptist, man. Are you guys Southern Baptist? No. American Baptist? No. Are you guys, uh, you know, I said, we're not Baptist. We're just Baptist. Whatever association you're thinking, we're not that. And he goes, oh, so what are you? I go, man, we're just regular old Baptist. Oh, so you're regular Baptist. No, 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 just Baptist. And he goes, oh, he's like plain Baptist. Plain Baptist, I've never heard of that. No, no, no. plain Baptist is not a thing. That's what I'm saying. We're just like Baptist, Baptist. I've never heard of double Baptist before. Man, Bible-believing, bible just, just we're not part of any association. We're not part of any gathering. Uh, there's nobody who has authority over us. We're a local, autonomous, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that traces our lineage back to the church that Jesus started. This church was started from Lancaster, Lancaster, California. Pastor Paul Chapel is my pastor to this day. But he has no authority over this church and whatsoever. He's just a good guy who looks out for my uh, well-being. Everybody needs a pastor, a shepherd in their life to guide them into spiritual fruitfulness. He does that for me, but he doesn't make any decisions for our church and has no authority here whatsoever. And most of you wouldn't know him if you saw him on the sidewalk. There's no board that we need to get permission from to do anything. We just follow the leading of Jesus and do what he tells us to do. And so what does that make us? I don't know. Maybe the best term is non-denominational Baptist and the fact that we're not connected with any other type of organizations or, or conventions or associations or uh, boards or anything like that. We're just... Baptists that don't adhere to any type of denominational group that we're a part of. Historically, Baptists have held to the purity of Jesus' church and strict adherence to Scripture, even in the face of great persecution and or death. And I can tell you today, I'm not a Baptist because I grew up in a Baptist house. I'm a Baptist because Baptists are biblicists and I'm a Baptist by conviction. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that. I'm not ashamed to say that. Are there Baptists that do terrible things? Absolutely. And most of those probably aren't even Christians. There's a, a group of terrible, despicable human beings that do things like protest soldiers' funerals and stuff like that. Those people aren't Baptists, and they're not even Christians. They're hate-filled people who call themselves Christians or maybe even adhere to the term, term Baptist. Look, you're so far off from what Jesus anticipated you to be. I'm not even sure that you're saved, much less even a Baptist or a church or a Christian. So we are just part of the church that Jesus started. And Baptist identifies us with biblicists who throughout history have just stood for truth. Charles Spurgeon, again, a Baptist pastor in the 1800s from London. History's hitherto been written by our enemies who would never have kept a single fact about us on record if they could have helped it. And yet it leaks out every now and then that certain poor people called Anabaptists were brought up for condemnation from the days of Henry II to those of Elizabeth 
We hear of certain unhappy heretics who were hated of men for the truth's sake, which was in them. We read of poor men and women with their garments cut short, turned out into the fields to perish in the cold, and anon of others who were burnt in Newington for the crime of Anabaptism. Long before your Protestants were known of, these horrible Anabaptists, as they were unjustly called, were protesting for the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. No sooner did the visible church begin to depart from the gospel that these men arose to keep fast by the good old way. So the moment in 200 AD that major doctrinal error came into the church, there was always people who says, nope, we're, we're sticking with the good stuff. We're sticking with God's word and we'll, we'll do it at all costs. And many of them gave their life, gave their children for God's word and the purity of Jesus' church. Now, what does all this have to do with Jude, who tells us to earnestly contend for the faith? Well, here I'll tell you what earnestly contending for the faith doesn't mean, first of all. It doesn't mean being judgmental and angry. Just because I stand for truth doesn't mean that I have to be ugly to people or tell everybody that I see that they're getting ready to split hell wide open. <laughs> There's a guy who used to stand out at uh, one of the bus stops during the, the Great Aloha Run. I don't know if he still does it. I haven't ran in the last couple of years, as you can tell from my size. Uh, but... um. He used to stand out at one of the bus stops near the end of the Great Aloha Run to the stadium with a massive sign that said, turn or burn. And like, I didn't know if people thought that that was directions for the race course or why, but it wasn't what he meant. And here's the thing, as I saw it, I immediately loved his desire to make Christ known. I loved it. I just wasn't sure that that was the best avenue or the best way to get it across. And so grabbing a megaphone, screaming at people on the street corner, turn or burn, you're all going to hell. You know, again, there's awful people who would call themselves Christians that say things like, you know, every time a, a gay nightclub gets shot up, angels in heaven rejoice. Bro, you don't even understand God's word. You don't understand the Bible. And so standing or earnestly contending for the faith, they say, well, I'm just holding the line. That's not holding the line. That's making Jesus look bad. And so standing for the faith doesn't mean being judgmental or angry. It doesn't mean being unnecessarily divisive. I'm not gonna be mad at somebody or say that they're a terrible Christian or an awful church because they sang a song that I didn't like or they, you know, some pastor told a joke that I didn't care for. I'm not gonna be divisive over things like that. But when people depart from major doctrinal truth, I'm gonna say, hey, I don't want any part with that. used to have some, some books that, that I, I was helped by that I thought were good books. We, had, we sold in our church bookstore and then the pastor that wrote those books actually said that uh, we didn't really need the Old Testament and we really didn't need, need the Bible. We just need to believe in the resurrection of Christ that the, the Bible wasn't really all that important. And I immediately jerked all the books out and uh, that dude right there is, is dead to me. You say that we don't need God's word, I'm done with you. I don't care how many thousands of people come to your church every week but I'm not gonna be divisive over the things that don't matter. Doctrine always divides. It always makes us different than everybody else. So I'm gonna stand for truth, I'm gonna stand for doctrine, but I'm not gonna be unnecessarily divisive. I'm not gonna be ugly to people because they go to a different church or somebody you know, who's a Pentecostal. I'm not gonna be mad at them or I'm not gonna sit with them at lunch because they believe differently than I do. I'm gonna to try to love everybody, but I'm gonna stand for truth and I'm gonna know what I believe and why I believe it. Standing for the faith also doesn't mean being combative against other people. Please understand this. People are not your enemy. The devil is. You know who's the author of every single false religion on the planet? The devil is. And the Bible tells us that the God, lower G, of this world has 
blinded their eyes so that they can't see the truth. It's not their fault that they are caught up in false religion. They're not the enemy. The devil is. So don't fight against other people. Don't be angry at other people. It's not their fault. I had a friend one time who thought it was funny to to scream ugly things at Jehovah's Witnesses when he saw them walking down the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, man, have some compassion. These people are in a broken system. It's leading them to hell, and they're trying to work their way to heaven. They're clawing their way to heaven every single day, and they're never going to make it. Have some compassion. Had the opportunity to go to El Salvador several years ago and went to the uh, main cathedral in San Salvador, and I saw a line of like 40 people deep waiting to get into the confessional. It absolutely broke my heart. Like, here are people that if they knew If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to wait for your turn to go into a booth for some guy to give you penance. Jesus Christ says it is finished. Faith in Jesus sets you free from all this, man. And I saw these people and I was broken for them. I didn't look at them and go, (laughs) bunch of knuckleheads. Look at them, wasting their time. (laughs) No, no, no. Brokenhearted. When Jesus saw lost people, you know what he had? The Bible said, Compassion. He saw him as sheep without a shepherd, and he was brokenhearted. And I don't have a single second for a Christian who's going to be judgmental, angry, combative, and divisive with people who need to know Jesus. Please, knock it off. And I'll go one step further and probably tell you that posting ugly stuff on Facebook doesn't, has never won anybody to Christ. Arguing with people on social media has never won anybody to Christ. I've never met somebody who I said, tell me your salvation testimony where they said, I was arguing with this dude on Facebook and he just posted this nasty video and I thought, man, there must be a Jesus out there. It never had to happen. You know what people said? I had a friend who loved me and prayed for me and showed me what real Christianity looked like. People invited me into their home and I sat with them and their family and I saw how they were different and I wanted that for myself. I've heard that all the time. So standing for the faith doesn't mean any of those things. But here's what standing for the faith does look like. First of all, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. We need to know the faith. That's why we place such a high importance on discipleship here. You need to know God's word and why you believe it and what you believe. Otherwise, the Bible says you'll be swept up with every wind of doctrine. I need to know the truth so that I can live the faith. You need to know the faith so you can live the faith. Look, churches, I do on the weekends. My faith is my life. It changes the way that I, that I raise my kids. It changes the way that I, I interact with my wife. It changes the way that I live my life day to day. It changed the, the profession that I wanted to do when I grew up. It changed everything about my life. And I want to live out my faith in a real tangible way. I don't want it just to be something I do on the weekends before I go on with my life. Next, we need to love the truth. Oh, it's your pastor's heart's desire that you would be a lover of truth, a seeker of wisdom, a lover of God's word, that you would become a theologian, a Bible scholar, that you would love the truth so much that you'd be willing to stake your life on it. There's a man that um, came to a missions conference about 10 years ago at our church that we were at in California. It was from the Philippines. Some radical Muslims had pulled over the bus that he was on and ordered everybody off. He asked people to raise their hand if they were a Christian. He and his wife both raised his hands. They came by and shot his wife in the head while he stood beside her and let him live. Would you have raised your hand 
I hope that you would. Do you love God's word and love the truth so much that you'd be willing to say, man, I'd take a bullet for that. I don't know. I think many Christians are like, ah, it's good for my family, but that's not really my thing. You know, I'm thankful that William Tyndale, when he was told to stop translating the Bible, didn't stop. I'm glad that he kept on because my life changed because of it. I'm glad that a guy like John Wycliffe, when he was told to stop, he didn't stop. He just kept on. A guy like John Huss, who they said, hey, recant, repent of faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not, and my blood will prove that I believe what I said I did. Do you love the truth that much? I want you to. Because through this, gives us the capability to love others. Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, my committed followers, by your love one to another. The love is the thing that, that distinguishes us from everybody else. My love for other people. So I want to be a person of love. I want to show compassion. I want to be known as a caring person. It's funny today in our society, it's not very macho to be a loving guy. I got no problem with that. You know why? Because Jesus told me to love. I got no problem saying to other men in our church, hey man, I love you and I'm praying for you this week. Because it's not some weird, awkward thing. It's saying, I care about you deeply and I want God's best for your life. And that's earnestly standing for the faith. That's being willing to stand for what you believe in. I, uh, I can't. I can't stomach most of the news these days. I, I, I scroll a news feed on my phone like once a day and like Google News, you know. And, and the funny thing is, is, this is how crazy life in the media is. Google knows everything about you anyways, first of all. And here's your conversations and all that. You know that, right? Funny story. I guess it's not funny. It's kind of scary. We were sitting on the couch three months ago. And our dog, we have a little Maltese. She's like the size of a small cat. It's not a man's dog, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sorry for that, but um, a little Maltese. And she's sitting on the couch, and she's licking the couch. And my wife says, ah, I'm going to strangle that dog. She's always licking our couch. No lie. Ten minutes later, my wife's scrolling her Facebook feed and sees an ad for dog licking pads. Dog licking pads? First of all, is that a thing? Evidently it is. And now here's an advertisement for you too can buy dog licking pads. Who needs dog licking pads? Someone whose dog licks the couch. Who would that be unless somebody was listening to our phone? Hey, it's not a coincidence. Not at all. So anyway, I said all that to say, my Google News feed basically just shows me news stories that it thinks I'm interested in, right? Stuff that I've clicked on before. It doesn't show me anything else. It only shows me the stuff it thinks that I want. So I've They've cultivated for me a news feed that shows me only things that either I agree with or things that I'm interested in. Isn't that funny? So if you're interested in the coronavirus pandemic and how many cases every day and how it's spreading, uh, you know, the new goggles that they're putting out that you're supposed to wear. Somebody told me, they said that you're supposed to be wearing goggles now with your mask. Oh, my soul. You're gonna, your news feed is going to blow up with stories about that, and you're going to be consumed with that. Just know. If you buy into all that, that's where your heart goes. And so I challenge you, focus on loving others more. Focus on truth of God's word more. I spend about three minutes scrolling my newsfeed, and I spend about 45 minutes in the morning in the word, and that gives me the perspective for the day. But I can tell you this, people that are consuming, you know, two or three hours of CNN and Fox News every day, they've lost all hope, and they don't know how to love anymore. I'll tell you that for sure. 
So we get the opportunity to give hope. We get the opportunity to show love. We get the opportunity to say, hey, no sweat, this is gonna be, this is gonna be over soon. And when it is, everything's gonna be fine. People are scared. We have hope. Let's share it. That's how we can earnestly contend for the faith. Final thoughts this morning. I want you to understand all this. We're not the only true church, and we're not the only church with the truth. I don't want anybody to leave here with a puffed up chest thinking to themselves, oh, our church has got it right and everybody else has got it wrong. No. There are plenty of other solid Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches in the world today. I will say there's not a lot of strong gospel witness here in our city. That's one of the reasons why we came to start Huikala, because we began to look in the area if there was a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church that was serious about the gospel and the Great Commission here in the urban part of Honolulu. We couldn't find one, so we came to start one. But it doesn't mean we're the only church in town with the truth. So let's never get in the idea that it's us against every other church in the world. That's not the case at all. And just because somebody calls themselves Baptist doesn't mean that they're right. Just because they're, somebody's a Bible church doesn't mean that they're wrong. And so, again, labels don't mean everything, but labels kind of give us a place to start from, but we're not the only church with the truth. But here's what we are. You are a part of the church that Jesus himself started. We're not a break off of a false church that decided to try to get it right. We identify with the apostles, Jesus Christ, and the church that started that day in Jerusalem. Since then, there have been believers all throughout the last 2,000 years that have stood for truth. We stand with them as Bible-believing Christians. You're a part of the church that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the church was so important to Jesus that he purchased it with his own blood. That means that you and I get to be a part of something special. See, church isn't just an add-on, bolt-on, something to do with your Christianity. Jesus says, I'm gonna die for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind, but I'm also gonna die for the church to give you a community, a family to be a part of, to grow together. And this church, Jesus bought it with his own blood. That's special to us. Don't ever forsake it. Don't ever think that it can be done without. We need the church. Next, you need to understand that you're part of a church that's been preserved by the blood of others. Our Christian forefathers were burned at the stake so that we could gather together on a Sunday morning and sing and praise God together. People watched as their children were drowned because they refused to give up a copy of the Bible. Don't forget that. What we have is unique and special because people thought it was so important that they gave their lives for it. One historian said this about the period of church history. There was much compromise, but there were some who held the truth and fought for it. And I would say that when you and I stand before God one day, that we could say to him that in our day and age, in our generation, there was much compromise, but we were a part of the group who stood our ground and fought for truth. Again, how do you do that? By knowing what you believe, living it out, and loving other people. That's how we fought for truth. We weren't willing to compromise or willing to give in. <laughs> One author said it this way, we don't find anywhere in the writings of the Old Testament that the light of truth and holiness was at any time completely extinguished. But there's always been men who walked faithfully in the paths of righteousness. One of the errors of Mormonism is they said that Joseph Smith went out to the forest to pray and ask God what church he should be a part of because there were so many. And God told him that the true church had been lost and he needed to restore it. And so God wrote on tablets of gold in the middle of the forest 
the Book of Mormon, and Joseph Smith would take these massive hunk of gold out of the forest and then get a magic hat to decode the, the words of the tablets to then restore the true church. Lies from beginning to end. There's never been a time where the light of truth has ever gone out. Their number has been at time reduced to few, but it's never been altogether lost. And we believe that the same has been the case from the time of Jesus Christ till now and will be so until the end. For if the cause of God was founded, it was in order that it might remain until the end of time. Now, our ushers have on the way out for you today, for those of you that are uh, church history junkies or you want to be, this massive chart is basically an outline of church history. Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. It starts with the church that Jesus started, and then it begins to show the breaks that went off of the church here. It begins to, to actually, the, the church that Jesus started is on the bottom and the rise of Catholicism and the churches that split off of that to the top. Major uh, doctrinal errors that we see throughout history are listed here. Times where people gave their life for the faith is listed at the bottom, the Dark Ages, and even until now. And so if you want to grab one of those from our ushers on the way out, uh, do that. Some other recommended reading that I put in your, um, your notes for today, uh, the Hi A History of Baptist by John T. Christian is a great book that talks about uh, church history from a, a, a biblical standpoint and really a, a accurate historical standpoint. Uh, J.M. Carroll wrote a, a little booklet called The Trail of Blood, which is where this uh, chart uh, comes from, people who've given their life for the faith through the ages. Uh, a Glorious Church was written by Mac Mike Gass as well. Uh, my pastor wrote a book called Outsiders. It's 13 people after uh, the Bible who gave their life for their faith. And reasons why we have what we have today for 13 people who have given their lives for that. I highly recommend that book if you haven't read Outsiders yet. I'll uh, have about 10 copies of that. The cost of those is $10 each. Uh, that's what we pay for them. Also, I'd encourage you to get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it. Uh, it's a story of hundreds of people who throughout uh, church history have given their life for the faith. You and I are continuing to live out church history today by choosing to be a part of Jesus' church and living out our faith in a real, tangible way as well. Here's the bottom line. Here's the carryaway from this. First of all, I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Secondly, I want you to have a grateful spirit for what we have and realize we are living in a unique time in human history where you and I have more access to God's word than people in all of the world ever have before. Thirdly, I want you to realize that many people in our city do not know Jesus, and that's our fault. We need to take ownership for that, and we need to fix it. How do we do that? By living out our faith and sharing truth in a loving, caring way. This church is all about the gospel, and I pray until the day that Jesus Christ returns, who we call about his church will forever be a lighthouse of the gospel here in this city. But it requires us to be serious about that and to do our part. But I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for what Jesus has given us. I'm thankful to be a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching Christian who takes God at his word and who's, who sees that Jesus Christ is enough. That's the end of our, our study in Better Together. I hope it's been a help to you these last 10 weeks as we take a look at the church and how important it is to us. Now let's live out our lives as a church each and every day. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.